Hello and welcome to our very first podcast of 2014. I'm Eric Olander and as always I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witt University in Johannesburg who today, uh, due to the holidays, joins us from Nagoya, Japan. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Nice to have you on the same uh, side of the world here in Asia. Yeah, it's it's freezing here. I have to say, it's it, it's like it looks like snow actually. Well, it's definitely not freezing down here in uh, Southeast <laughs> Asia. So uh, I'm I'm in shorts and uh, t-shirts and uh, you know just uh, kind of sweating it through. So I, I envy you with the cold because I do miss it for this time <laughs> of year. Uh, we thought that for this uh, our first podcast of 2014, uh, we would d- kind of do a very quick review and preview. Now we know that it's already 2014 and not 2013, and I'm sure everybody's absolutely sick and tired of the year. Reviews, so we will not make this a year in review show, but we will kind of put our top three stories of 2013 and also kind of do a look forward to what we're expecting uh, this year in the China Africa space. So, without further ado, uh, let's kind of bring everybody up to speed, Kobus, on, on kind of what not in any particular order, but just a discussion of what some of the top stories that you that caught your attention in 2013. Uh, you know, again, not your top three, we'll save that for the end of our discussion, but just randomly, what were some of the things that caught your attention this year or last year? One of the big ones was the the um, the break in oil production and the the threat, threats of of a, a total shutdown in oil production um, in in Chad um, following uh, a scandal of of uh, an oil spill scandal where where oil apparently was was dumped without you know, requisite safety measures and workers were made to clean it up without without the real you know kind of the the kind of safety gear that they need to do that um, that was a little flurry of of fighting you know kind of between between the Chadian government and and the Chinese oil companies and for the, for a moment it looked like uh, you know that that African governments are going to be more uh, proactive in enforcing their own environmental laws and labor laws, um, and that that China would have to to take notice, um, you know, and 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 be be more aggressive in in policing their own companies. Whether that's actually going to play out that way, that's kind of the fantasy version of that story. I think um, what you know, I, I think in reality, as it has, as as we we discussed with Ramad Ditkin earlier, um, you know, in earlier the month in in December, um, I think. You know, kind of, it's it's politically more complicated than that. And I think it's um, a, it's a very difficult thing for us to analyze based on news reports. I mean, this exactly. was the, this is the problem of aid data is that you can see you know what the, what the Chadians did by actually kicking out CNPC China National Petroleum Corporation for a, about two month period. Uh, everybody kind of took that in a vacuum and said, look, African governments, even Chad, are being more assertive. doesn't matter if they're poor. The big, bad Chinese evil companies come in. Uh, African governments can, in fact, stand up to them. What we learned later on was that there were negotiations going on throughout that whole period. And then two to three months later, CNBC is back in. We don't, as you know, as you said, we don't know if this was an isolated instance or if it reflects a broader trend. Uh, so outside of Chad, though, interesting you talk about the expulsion uh, that was also a story we saw in Botswana where President Ian Kama, he said that he was not going to use uh, Chinese contractors uh, because of the low quality of work. We saw a pushback in Nigeria with the very famous uh, Financial Times editorial by Central Bank Governor Sanusi Lumido, who really said that uh, China is behaving in a very imperial, neo-colonial way. That got a lot of people going. So I think you touched on something very interesting here with this idea of a more assertive African agency uh, across the continent in many different parts of the region. 
Yeah, and you know, kind of, so it almost became a fashion for African leaders to to say that Africa needs to be, you know, kind of a tougher negotiator with China. Um, you know, what what I was wondering is is how much of that actually. Uh, you know what, what kind of reaction that got behind closed doors in Beijing? You know, kind of whether whether anyone really took that seriously, whether it was seen, you know, kind of as I suspected a little bit, as more of a kind of a rhetorical flourish rather than a, you know, than than a new policy direction, um, and you know, kind of whether that would actually even lead to any kind of real real um, shared negotiation, because I mean that would be the real the real news story, you know, kind of if African blocs started negotiating collectively um, and they started undermining the kind of the, the bilateral country country you know relationship with China that that has been traditional up to now. Well, so far I haven't seen that. Yeah, I mean this goes back to our conversation that we had with Kai Xue, who was the attorney in Beijing. We had we talked to him towards the end of. 2013. And he really put the emphasis on the fact that for the Chinese, this is business. Uh, This is not ideological. This is not anything to do with politics. Uh, They look at Africa in very much business terms, in terms of resource extraction, in terms of even political influence. Uh, It's in a very calculated business way. What I suspect is happening in Beijing is that they are evolving towards more of a bilateral uh, foreign policy. That is, they are not looking at Africa as a continent as much anymore, but they are establishing uh, you know, more bilateral relationships. And this is what we saw out of the Ghana uh, gold mining scandal, which was they have very effectively handled this crisis. Uh, Professor Li Anshan of Beijing University, uh, he highlighted that after this scandal uh, occurred, which is, in, you know, if you recall, uh, it was about 168 illegal Chinese gold miners were expelled from Ghana in, in the spring of this year uh, for illegal gold mining. And it really caught the headlines and it took China by, by surprise. But what was very interesting, what Professor Lian Shan said, was how effectively the Chinese worked with their Ghanaian counterparts, quickly resolved the issue and prevented it from blowing up. And, and that is an indication that I think that they are getting better at understanding country by country what the issues are rather than simply Africa as a continent. Yeah, I completely agree. I think what, what it also shows is that um, is, is the value of, of using regional government in China to deal with some of these issues. You know, kind of because the um, these gold miners were all from a particular region, um, and so the regional and provincial governments in, in China also became involved in, in, in the repatriation negotiations and, and, and getting them out of jail and getting them tickets and flying them back. Um, you know, so, so it's, you know, kind of the, the value of not only the, st- the the national government in China, but also smaller, you know, different levels of government in China getting involved in these negotiations, especially because these regional governments are also frequently uh, investors, you know, in Africa. I mean, they they are another layer of investment energy. Um, so I think that that might you know, kind of point the way forward to to a, a valuable kind of way of of working out some of these problems in the future. Another story that we saw last year was really the, uh, you know, I wouldn't call it a surge, but it's been a steady increase in Chinese manufacturing uh, in Africa. There are labor pressures in China right now that are prompting a lot of state-owned enterprises along with Chinese companies to look overseas uh, for manufacturing. Now, a lot of that is coming to places like where I'm at here in Vietnam uh, and closer to home in Southeast Asia, but Africa is getting on the map. So, Kobus, in your backyard, uh, the there was a taxi scandal that happened. 
where the Chinese, I think it's Beijing Automotive Works, uh, wanted to open a factory in South Africa. They built the whole factory, and then uh, from what I recall, South Africa's very powerful labor unions came in and shut it down at the last minute, only to have it reopened uh, soon after. But it does show you the complications that China's facing as it increases its manufacturing, uh, particularly in South Africa, where I think most of that's occurring. Yeah, in, um, in in that case, it was it wasn't only the labor unions; it was the taxi driver unions, which is a, a particular South African thing. Uh, the whole of you know a lot a large amount of South Africa's um, transportation is t- takes place in the form of little sixteen seater minibus taxis, and those um, those driver organizations are incredibly powerful. Um, so, and they they protested against, you know, the, the, the generalization of Chinese-built taxis because they were afraid that they won't be able to get spare parts and after-service care. So in, in being, being in Japan at the moment, it was this interesting kind of, uh, you know, kind of vote of confidence for, for, you know, kind of Japanese soft power and, you know, kind of the, the reputation of, Japan, of large Japanese companies because these taxi driver organizations all said, no, we prefer Toyota. Um, so that was very interesting. And we saw increase in manufacturing in Ethiopia, where Huajin, the world's largest shoe manufacturing company, expanded its investment. Uh, Small factories have been opening up around Nigeria. So across the continent, there's this bubbling of more manufacturing coming, coming, and this is really in many ways what Africa needs, in my opinion, more than anything. Because manufacturing employs people, it generates economic output, there are industries that support manufacturing, uh, and, and really, if, if China can do anything in the next, say, five to ten years, it is to shift more of that manufacturing to do training. Now, there's a caveat here, because this was also a story in, in 2013, which was labor conditions, both in Chinese-owned factories, but also on Chinese-run construction projects. And labor COBUS continued to be one of the sore spots in the relationship between China and Africa. Yes, and um, you know the African governments are increasingly becoming more restrictive. I would say, in certain cases, even repressive um, in in how they they are trying to to channel and and uh, protect certain kind of sectors against foreign workers. Um, you know, for so you saw in 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 a bunch of African countries, including Malawi, new laws that uh, that in certain places, you know, kind of foreigners can't trade. In certain places, they you know they can only open businesses of a certain kind. Um, I think this is not only. I, th- I think you know, to me, it seems somewhat counterproductive, and also it it seems. To point to a larger issue, um, which which again relates to the you know kind of the the vogue in Africa this year of uh, of of talking tough to China, um, that I don't know how committed African governments necessarily are to to kind of to jumping into the world economy in in a in a larger way. You know, kind of I think they've, they've, there's a lot of confused voices um, in Africa um, and and I don't see a lot of very concerted development plans. Um, but you know, kind of, with the exception of of a, of a few places like like Rwanda, for example, um, you know, kind of, I, I see there's a lot of like back and forth, a lot of populist kind of, uh, you know, playing, you know, playing to popular sentiments that sometimes comes a bit close to race baiting, um, and uh, you know, so it, it, it's a little worrying for me. Well, let's talk about uh, China's role on the security front because there too we saw a, a real sharp rise in UNPKO peacekeeping operations by the United Nations. So the the Chinese are active and continue to be active and have renewed their 
agreement to participate in the multinational anti-piracy operations in the Gulf of Aden uh, off the coast of Somalia in East Africa, around the Horn of Africa there. Uh, also, the Chinese deployed uh, riot police into Liberia uh, in order to do training uh, and to help with stabilization. The, the Chinese uh, deployed uh, PLA, UN, blue-helmeted PLA, I should note, uh, to Mali to help protect UN operations there in, in the wake of the, uh, the French intervention that happened there. So we saw Chinese blue helmets uh, across the continent. Now, at the end of 2013 and into 2014, the Chinese are participating in a multi-party, multinational uh, security discussion and dialogue over South Sudan. So is this the, the, the rise of China as a security presence in Africa? Or, as Professor David Shambaugh of George Washington University says, it's the partial power where China is partly in, but they're not really in enough to have any direct influence on the course of events. What do you see as China's role on the security front? It seems to me that this this is re, this reveals China's ambivalence about its role as a, as a future superpower. You know, um, even you know while. While there's a lot of, of rhetoric um, in the U.S., you know that China is is trying to replace the U.S. as 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 a world superpower. I don't know that they are necessarily that interested in in jumping into that role, and that certain. I, I really don't think that they're, they're very interested at the moment, anyway, in taking on that world pol- that global policeman role that the U.S. sometimes plays. Well, there's interest um, and capability. So even if they were interested, exactly. one has to wonder if they even have. They, well, we don't have to wonder. We know they don't have the resources to do large scale exactly. deployments or to do anything other than what they're doing right now in something as far away as Africa. And you know, kind of, you also you also don't have this this kind of superpower energy that that you've seen that you, you know that you see in the U.S. where you know they they gather information about every country on earth you know and they they kind of they want to have a presence everywhere. Um, it just seems to me that that the China well China is starting from a very low low level in anyway um, on that and but they they seem very careful. I mean. The the first it was the first time in you know in a very long time that uh, that you saw the, the Mali deployment was was the first Chinese combat troops you know on foreign soil um, as as part of a as part of a UN deployment but I mean it was like 150 people it's or very so, you know, modest very modest so you know kind of I, I'd be surprised if if there's like a a, a real increase in the next while you know I, yeah I don't country. I don't see it coming at all uh, again they're going to follow their national interests and. Their national security interests are to secure resources and increasingly to secure the the people and property overseas. So you may see a rise uh, in private security contractors. That was a story that we covered a little bit last year as well, that uh, a la Blackwater in the United States, the former Blackwater, it's no longer called that anymore. Uh, nonetheless, uh, security is going to be a, a, a growing role, but people too often put it in the paradigm of the Americans or of the Europeans. And I think they're going to be something different. Cobus, we're running out of time, and I, you know, it, clearly the biggest story and certainly the most popular story on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa uh, project, and I saved this one for last because I know this is going to be the most sensitive one, is the ivory question. Uh, Certainly among Westerners, 
that is the most sensitive issue when it comes to the China-Africa relationship. We see it on our Facebook page every single time we post something up. It gets so much attention. And it gets attention from people who are not very sophisticated about the China-Africa relationship. They're not sophisticated about the Chinese policy and what fuels the demand. And they're also unsophisticated, in my view, about the, the reasons for poaching and who's actually involved. And when we hear all of these extraordinary rumors that – You know, it's the Chinese laborers that are killing the rhinos. It is the Chinese gangs that are killing the the elephants and whatnot, when in fact it's far more complex than that. What I thought was interesting is the the editorial that we read from the Kenyan Wildlife Services earlier in the year, which talked about how poor governance in Africa, particularly in East Africa, uh, weak uh, controls at Kenya Airlines – uh, for example, and all of these contributing factors are fueling the the ivory trade. And it, to boil it down simply to Chinese demand misses a big part on the supply side. I don't say that to defend the Chinese in any way. What I'm suggesting is the fact that this is a very complicated story that has a lot of nuance to it, and that oftentimes gets you know lost in the Facebook debates of screaming and yelling. What was your kind of takeaway from 2013 on the ivory story? Absolutely. I mean, I completely agree with you. I think the, you know, there's, there's two issues involved here. In the first place, one has to look at China, not just the ivory consumption in China, but China as a developing, uh, luxury consumption market, you know, um, like China is, 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 is developing, you know, kind of a, a, a need for, for luxury consumption. Um, and part of that is, part of that Symbolic vocabulary is, is imported from the West, you know, kind of so, so brands like Gucci, Louis Vuitton, and so on, they're, they're selling more in China now than they're selling in most other places. Um, and that I think is a phase, you know, kind of Japan went through a, a Louis Vuitton phase of its own, um, you know, in the, in the eighties and nineties. Um, and now that is over, you know, kind of so, so that, that is, that is a phase that, that developing countries go through. Um, and, you know, but at the same time, China has a long and very rich and very sophisticated history of art and design and decoration of its own, which includes ivory. You know, kind of, so there is, there is this very complicated um, reality that China is, is, in this sense, both a new country and an old country. And certain old things are being revived. Um, and that has these kind of global impacts. I think for me, what's the bigger issue is, it, it, and, and that kind of links back to, to the issues of, of, of labor and trade and, and restrictions and so on in Africa, is Africa just, it's so important, so, so difficult and almost impossible to really say what does Africa really want. You know, kind of like Africa doesn't seem to have a, a concerted plan and a concerted strategy of, you know, kind of getting, you know, kind of anything, any kind of anything particularly out of the growth of China. Um, you know, so does Africa want to sell ivory? Some Africans do. Do they want to stop the sale, in, the sale of ivory? Some Africans do. You know, kind of do they want to, to impede the, the reforms that would, that would make it harder to sell ivory? Yes, some Africans do. So, you know, so it, it's, it's such a chaotic response. Um, and, and, and into that vacuum steps a whole bunch of international players whose job it is to generate press um, you know kind of including you know kind of including NGOs so what, what I think what what's from the Chinese side this is the the you know potentially kind of mother of all of all public relations disasters you know kind of that that would dwarf for example the the 
the anti-China protests that you saw about Darfur, you know, kind of just before the the, the Beijing Olympics. You know, this could this could turn out very badly for China. It could, but but one has to mm. wonder: Do they care? And I don't really get yeah, a sense that they true. strongly care about what people think. I mean, time and again, when the Chinese, you know, put officials up in in front of the cameras to talk about this issue, it's a denial. It's saying, no, we're not yeah. we're not responsible for this. There's a lot of causes that go into it. I do want to bring you up to what you, what you talked about, which is the deep traditions of ivory in uh, in Chinese art. Uh, Tendai Musakwa, who's one of our colleagues on the China Africa Project, he has done quite a bit of translations from social media. And some of his research is reinforced by uh, a lot of other findings that there seems to be a generational shift underway, uh, fueled by social media, fueled by celebrities, uh, that the younger generation thinks that ivory isn't cool. Uh, and in fact, there's a, a naming and shaming campaign that's going on on, on, uh, on Chinese social media. It's one of my frustrations with the Western uh, environmental and, and wildlife activist movement is that they are not taking the time and the effort to understand what the Chinese are actually saying. And as we know in China, uh, it, just like Africa, is not a singular entity. It's extraordinarily diverse. Uh, there is a lot of discussion going on on this. And on social media in particular, uh, there is this movement that's happening towards uh, saying it's not cool, don't do it, shaming your parents into buying from not from buying ivory and whatnot. And so there is a little hope. The key question, though, is is there enough time for the elephants and the rhinos and the other wildlife to survive until this new generation comes up and maybe changes their buying patterns? That is the, the very big question. Okay, Cobus, let's now quickly wrap up top three stories from 2013, in your opinion. Go. For me, it was the, the, the top one, the most important one was the expulsion of, of the Chinese miners from Ghana. Um, it, it was, you know, it, it, it touched so many different different issues uh, relating to China, Africa, and, and it, it opened up whole new whole new <laughs> sets of problems. Um, in the, the the second one for me is all of these these kind of successful calls in Africa to be tough in negotiations, uh, tough negotiators with with China. Um, and for me, actually, in the the third one is uh, is some, um, South Sudan, the, the the current crisis in South Sudan, and, and which corner it's going to push China into. Okay, my top three stories, uh, very similar to yours. So uh, great minds apparently do think alike here. Uh, a stronger African voice, that is Michael Sada, who's always been a strong voice for, for Zambia. Uh, um, Arthur Mutambara from Zimbabwe, Sanusi Lumido from Nigeria, and Ian Kama from Botswana. Uh, all have stood up this year and, and tried to reorient the China-Africa relationship uh, in, more in, in their country's favor. And I think that's a very positive trend. Uh, the Ghana gold mining scandal, number two. Uh, and for me, number three of, is the ivory poaching and the pace of killing. Uh, that is really something that's shocking to me, uh, is, to, is, is the brutality of it all. Uh, and it's, it, it's depressing on one sense, too, when you see that these people are being arrested and they, they get, you know, $500 fine. <laughs> so I, I really, again, I do hope that uh, African governance improves on this. Cobus, when we started out this show, we said it was going to be not a year in review. It's going to be a year in review and preview, but we are already running over time. So let's, um, in order to, so I can be true to my word here, let's quickly take a look at what's coming up ahead uh, in 2014. What are your top three stories that you're looking at or trends that you're looking at to, to, to kind of shape China-Africa relations in the year ahead? Um, 
they're all kind of related. Um, the one is, is I think this, the fluctuations in the Chinese economy is going to be felt in Africa. You already see it happening in South Africa, and it's definitely going to have an impact on on the amount of oil that China buys. So how China economy, how China's economy grows and you know kind of declines is going to have real impacts. In the second place, I think um, China might reconsider some of its engagement in in particularly risky areas you know kind of so it's going to be interesting to see what happens in south sudan because they're so heavily invested there and they've played such a mediating role um but if south sudan disintegrates and you know kind of china might have to reconsider um, and i think they they're probably getting a little uh, a little more careful about where they invest and um, that that's that's my feeling and the second and the third place i think it is a, a refocusing on asia and particularly East Asia. So I think there might be a little less energy in China to focus on Africa this this coming year, simply because East Asia is so worrisome. Um, and at the same time, I think in Africa, you're probably going to see the rise and, and, and continued prominence of other Asian players, including Malaysia, South Korea, and Japan, um, you know, in the African economy. Interesting. Uh, my top three trends or stories uh, number one I share with you, Kobus, is the Chinese economic slowdown. Uh, this has a, an impact not only on oil, but also on, on resource extraction, all the iron ore, the coke, the uranium. All of that goes into making all the stuff and the crap that we around the world buy. And if the Chinese are making less of it, they're going to need less raw materials going in. So that's going to be number one. Uh, number two, these anti-Chinese migration laws is going to be something that I'll keep an eye on. Uh, again, it's a trend that started in 2013. There was a deadline on uh, December 31st or January 1st in Zimbabwe uh, that actually didn't end up coming to pass. But it does show you that there's a growing intolerance of local Chinese merchants uh, in, in major urban areas across, uh, across Africa. And I think a lot of it has to do with politics, that it's easier to blame foreigners and immigrants. And that's a, a tried and true political tactic that's done all over the world. So the Chinese are now subject to that. Some of it, in fact, may be true as there's economic displacement. But as the Chinese economy slows, as that is an effect on African economies, I see that Chinese migrants who are in Africa as being vulnerable. So that's something to keep an eye on for this year as well. And then my third story is South Sudan. So I'm following you almost uh, two out of three, that if South Sudan blows up in China's face, this will have been the second investment to have gone wrong, dreadfully wrong over security concerns, uh, following Libya, where the Chinese lost a lot of money from construction projects and some oil investments. Uh, the Chinese have made a big investment in Sudan. Uh, South Sudan and the whole Sudanese project. Uh, they've taken a lot of PR backlash for their Darfur, uh, uh, you know, uh, related to Darfur. And to see this blow up, if it does, uh, will be interesting. It's also going to test Chinese diplomacy and their top Chinese diplomat, Mr. Zhong Jianhua, which we'll talk about in a, in a coming show. So, uh, Kobus, we, we really don't have any more time. So, uh, <laughs> obviously, it's been a very busy year in China-Africa relations. It doesn't seem like it's going to slow down on the news front, even if China's attention does shift to Asia a little bit more which I do agree with you on that. Um, so if you want to participate in our discussion to share what you think is happening and going on, the best way to do it is over on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Cobus, right now we're at 143,000 followers from all over the world, mostly from Africa, the Middle East, and South Asia. So there's clearly a lot of interest in this. Uh, but if Cobus, if people want to follow you and what you're thinking and reading and doing these days, what's the best way they can stay in touch? 
Um, you'll see my name on our Facebook page uh, when I respond to commenters. And also you can follow me on Twitter at Stadnesk. That's S-T-A-D-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China in Africa headlines almost every day. Uh, it's been a little bit of a slow news period during the holidays, so we'll be ramping up more posts on Facebook and more on Twitter and, of course, if you want to follow our podcast, the best way to do it is over on iTunes, but you can follow it on SoundCloud. We post it up on Twitter. We post it up on Facebook. It's on Stitcher. It's on the BlackBerry Network. It's on the Kindle Network. So we're basically almost everywhere you want to be. Uh, if you have a mobile device, iOS or Android, download our apps. Look in your respective store, and you can find our apps there, and you can listen to the show uh, there as well. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Oh,